0: Thank you for coming um, to this conversation. I'm really excited. My name's is Metallian Conde. I am a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center and this uh, conversation that I'm hosting is part of my ongoing work, but I'm most I'm excited, excited to host it during Black History Month and wearing my black red and green. Um, for unity and liberation. Um, just to let you know. So welcome. So this conversation is being recorded. We are not alone. So please be <laughs> mindful of what you say in terms of comments. Um, if you do want to tweet us, tweet at us. Our handle is at bkc harvard, and um, I am very excited. So just a little bit of play setting. I have worked in technology for the last seven years, but the 10 years prior to that, I was actually a journalist. I worked in broadcast at the BBC, and the beat that I looked at was science, technology, and youth, which ultimately meant um, black people. Like, what are the black people doing, and how can you help us tell those stories? I moved to the US around 14 years ago now, worked at CNN and ABC and all the letters. Um, if that's your field, come and find me. The letters, same, same newsroom, like different boss, basically. <laughs> and I got roped into a technology around 2013 in New York City when we were first starting to have hackathons and first uh, thinking about teaching kids to code. And uh, that work led me into nonprofits, led me to Google, led me to, ultimately, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, which is a book by Kathy O'Neill. Kathy O'Neill and I both work in, uh, both live in Brooklyn, New York. It was really easy to actually find her because at the time prior to her book coming out, she was coming to my local library to talk about this book that she didn't think would sell. <laughs> so um, it did sell. I did meet her, and we, as we went through the book, I, be, I began to be, uh, I began to ask questions about the legality of the technologies that she was describing, because many of them seemed predatory and many of them seemed to break rules, and I had. Um, while transitioning out of broadcast and into technology, uh, worked on the Obama campaign in Philadelphia. So had developed a huge rolodex of people within the Congressional Black Caucus and Progressive Caucuses, and started to basically send them emails pretty much every day where I was saying, this is happening in technology, and this is actually illegal. And this has racial and social justice implications, and somebody needs to be thinking about that. Perlate that into um, eventually into becoming a fellow. I'm currently on the Fellowship Industrial Complex. I hold two as we speak at Harvard and Stanford. And in my first fellowship, was able to um, deliver on the introduction of three bills to Congress that were looking at technology. But the way that I sold those to each of the committees was around this idea that anti-black racism was a threat to our national security Luckily for me, Cambridge Analytica happened, um, just soon after, and then the Mueller report. And it was within the Mueller report that we were able to see how advertising algorithms were used to create black online identities and to reduce uh, the Clinton vote. So even though I seem very extreme initially by making that statement, and I seem very bold, The statement ultimately caught up to me and ended up introducing the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which I can talk about afterwards. This is not for this conversation. Deepfake's Accountability Act, because obviously as a visual journalist, as a documentarian, I'm very very concerned about the integrity of truth in film. And then finally, the No Biometric Barriers in Housing Act, which was looking at facial recognition as a way to gain entry um, into an apartment that you already own in Brooklyn, New York and uh, ultimately I'm here. So without further ado, I think you know who I am. I'm gonna get into a conversation. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Howard Stevenson who is a clinical psychologist. He's, he works at um, the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. And even though this has absolutely nothing to do with the conversation, but it gives me a kick. He's he's um, Brian Stevenson's older brother, and is actually depicted in the blockbuster movie. I'm claiming it, um, Just Mercy, which is in screens on screens now, right? On screens now. And were you at Super Soul Sessions when your brother <laughs> met Oprah? Um, no, I was Okay, so didn't meet Oprah, but close. Um, And it really has provided the theoretical frames for this idea of racial literacy and technology. So if you wouldn't mind just welcoming him, him, (laughs) I would appreciate that. And um, he's gonna be, he's in conversation with Dr. Jesse Daniels, who teaches at the uh, CUNY, City University of New York uh, with appointments at the Graduate Center. She has been researching uh, race and uh, technology and white supremacy for the last 25 years. I consider her one of my first teachers in this field after Kathy O'Neill and then some other really cool white women in data science who were not scared to talk about race with me. Um, and she really was the intellectual leader and drive behind a report that we, we uh, published uh, through Data and Society last year called Advancing Racial Literacy in Tech. So if you wouldn't mind welcoming her also. So um, I'm going to start with you, uh, Dr. Stevenson. Would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are, how you came and how you came to this work?
1: So um, I am a clinical psychologist. I run a center called the Racial Empowerment Collaborative. And I have a team of colleagues um, where we founded a, a partnership called The Lion Story, where we do training around the country around how to navigate racial, racially stressful encounters um, with the focus of helping people make healthy decisions in less than two minutes. And we've been working with young people as young as fifth graders uh, to adults across a variety of um, police, uh, education, health spectrums um, and so um, I started this because I grew up in a family um, with my brother Brian and my sister Christy um, that seemed to have to talk about as well as try to deal with racial politics growing up in southern Delaware. Anybody here heard of Delaware before? <laughs> sort of. Well we grew up in a very southern part of Delaware which is different than the northern part of Delaware where people were thought of, um, regardless of their racial background, as lower, slower, very country, very rural, very much like the South. And the politics of race where we grew up was very much like being in the South because of the way in which um, folks would treat us in public spaces. My father and mother, very different people, multiculturally different. They had different styles about how they navigated racial politics. My father, growing up in Southern Delaware, his belief um, for us in dealing with racial conflict was to have us in church twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. He believed if anybody bothered us because of the color of our skin, um, your job was to not get physical, um, not put your hands on anybody, um, but you 're supposed to pray for them, believing that God would get them back in the end. <laughs> he believed in retaliation is just a spiritual retaliation and so um, Growing up in, in Southern Delaware, church folk meant a lot to us, but they socialized us to think about praying around racial conflict. My mother grew up in North Philly. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> heard of North Philly, but it's very different from Southern Delaware. She, was, she said, if anybody bothered you because of your race or your skin, you could not only put your hands on them, you could pick up anything to help you <laughs> navigate the problem. Very different processes, very different strategies. She's very direct, more Malcolm X-like. He was more Martin Luther King-like. His approach, in my view, has led us to think about how do you prepare, process racial moments. And my mother's view is more around, how do you speak up? How do you develop the skills to do to protest? And so um, my upbringing, as well as my brothers, would be around this notion of how do you navigate those two kinds of approaches when you are confronted by racial moments in particular, but racial problems uh, writ large.
0: Thank you. And Dr. Daniels, what
2: brought you to this work? Um, thanks so much for inviting me. And it's such an honor to be in conversation with the both of you today. Um, yeah, so I uh, was born and raised in Texas and uh, um, grew up um, with two parents who were ardent segregationists and racist and um, and was very much their daughter. Um, and uh, began sort of arguing with my father early on about race in various ways. Um, and and when I eventually ended up in uh, graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, I went into graduate school, I'm deeply embarrassed to tell you all, I went into graduate school still believing uh, the lie, one of the lies that my father had taught me, which was that I was Cherokee. Um, mm-hmm. and. And part of what is so embarrassing about that is, as most of you probably know in this room, is there's a wonderful book by Vin Deloria, which I read in graduate school, which is Custer Died for Your Sins, in which he says, yes, every day in my office. He worked at National Indian Affairs at the time. And every day, every week in my office, I have some white person who comes in and tells me about their Cherokee grandmother. And you may have heard a similar story on the political trail um, just recently. Um, So it's a very very common belief uh, among white people and I was chagrined to learn that I was not in fact Cherokee and that I was kind of a cliche for believing that. Um, But I think that one of the things that that did for me is it kind of inoculated me in a particular kind of way against whiteness because I was already in my 20s when I was in graduate school and I hadn't really subscribed to the idea of being white, even though I was included in that group. And then I began working with uh, Joe Fagan and studying uh, race and racism. This was in the late 80s, early 90s. And I got interested um, in the production of rhetoric by white supremacist groups. I went to the Klan Watch archive in in Montgomery, about a seven hour drive from Austin, Texas, and studied printed publications of Klan and and, uh, allied groups that were producing this white supremacist rhetoric. Um, That was my dissertation, it became my first book called White Lies, and part of what I found in doing that research was that these broadsheets, these newsletters produced by ardent white supremacists in the contemporary American context actually sounded very much like the mainstream political rhetoric I was hearing. So this is early 90s, you may um, be familiar with somebody named Pat Buchanan who was running for president at the time on the Republican ticket. He gave a speech at the RNC that year that um, Texas humorist by the name of Molly Ivins sound said sounded much better in the original German, um, and, and <laughs> tracks very closely to the kind of rhetoric that we, uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we hear today in, in uh, political circles. Um, so I was really fascinated by the way that this extremist literature mapped on to the mainstream political white supremacy and sort of how we um, it, we, meaning uh, white people who thought about white supremacy, use these sort of extremist groups to distance ourselves from this uncomfortable truth that this was really at the core of um, uh, extremist white supremacy. In the middle of doing that dissertation, I was at a, a beloved aunt's house. I pulled a book off the shelf. It was Thomas Dixon's The Klansman. I said, Aunt Marie, why do you have this book? And she said, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think it was your granddad's, my father's father. Why would he have this book? Oh, he was in that group, honey. I was like, "What?" <laughs> so there I am in the middle of doing a dissertation on the Klan, and I learned that my paternal grandfather had been in the Klan. And and for me, part of the reason of telling that story, which also I'm quite still ashamed about, is that it for, it, it drives home for me the fact that this is a it's a personal issue. This is also the grandfather that molested me when I was a child, and I wrote about that in the uh, White Lies book, the preface to that book before it came out. And, and I thought that my father would be very so proud of me when I wrote it. It's a lovely piece of writing. And uh, instead, he had me locked in a psych ward for 72 hours. Um, so for me, I tell all of that story to say, <coughs> P.S., by the way, I'm working on a memoir. But um, <laughs> I tell that story to say this is very much for me a personal issue. People oftentimes will come up to me and say, oh, it's so... I actually had someone say to me one time, it's so good what you're doing for the black people. And I was like, that is not why I'm, I'm doing this work. This is very much for my own liberation, which I see as tied to the liberation of other people here. So um, fast forward to uh, the internet happened after I wrote that book, and I followed those same groups into how they were making use of internet technology. And that was my second book called Cyber Racism. I've written several others since then. But that experience of sort of writing about white supremacy sort of before and after the internet is where I come from and also
0: have a very personal connection to this um, ideology. So fun fact. Fun fact. When I told my parents that I was working with the granddaughter of a clans (laughs) <laughs> Klansmen. They were like, "Really? Is that what you want to do? <laughs> you can come home." And then I did tell them that I was also um, working with Howard Stevenson, and they were like, "Did he know Brian Stevenson?" I was like, "Yeah." And they were like, "Well, why don't you work with him and not her? Because she just doesn't um, seem like a good idea." But but I didn't listen, obviously. So so, so my my next question really gets to thank you both for being so honest about that. This notion of racial literacy and technology, which is what kind of has brought the three of us into conversation. So last year, um, like I said, I'm truly on the fellowship industrial complex. Like if I had a rap sheet, it would be very long. (laughs) So last year, uh, Jesse and I were fellows at Data and Society. In New York City, it's a research institute started by Dana Boyd, who's also a former fellow of Berkman Klein. And one of the things that we became really interested in is we came to the Kennedy School for a conference on technology, and it was public interest technology. And in all the conversations that we had throughout the day, nobody spoke about race. And I had just come from really doing this intense work in Congress and with black, Uh, legislators around the racial impacts. So we wanted to put something out, a very, very short report called Advancing Racial Literacy in Tech. We were looking for a theoretical frame to help us think about race and racism in a way that it's not this huge thing that nobody can solve, and we're certainly not going to solve it in this conversation. But to give us some tools to talk, really, we were talking about billionaires at the time. Like, we were, I think that was our goal. We were like, if only Jeff Bezos could get this, there would be no <laughs> ring. Probably still hasn't read it. Hi, Jeff. Um, but we were, and that's how we came into conversation with Dr. Stevenson, who had written for schools. So we were looking to take a theory that was meant for uh, families and for school communities into the technical spaces that we were working. In my case, Congress, and I sometimes speak with tech companies, and in Jesse's case, the same. So my second question is really around for the people in this room, so that we can start to discuss the concept. Could you, in a really um, succinct, succinct way as you can, really talk us through what racial literacy is mm-hmm. and how, potentially, we could become racially literate?
1: <clears throat> so. Um, For 30 years, I've been studying a a topic called racial socialization, which predates the way we think about racial literacy. And that is, does it matter, for example, when parents talk to their kids about race? Does it help them navigate the world? Does it help them feel better about themselves? So these are questions I've been asking and colleagues have been asking for 30 years. And the example I give you is my mother being stressed out, basically, by being in southern Delaware because her style was different, her approach was different. She alienated people even when she walked through supermarkets. And we would go with her. Before she, we, we would go into the store, she would give us the talk. Don't ask for nothing. Don't touch nothing. Right? I don't care how many other kids are in the supermarket. They're not my kids. you got to listen to me. Anybody else get that talk when they're growing up? OK, that is a form of racial socialization. And we never acted up. Right? We never would get out of trouble. She'd give us that talk over and over and over again. Um, And the question I was always wondering, why do you give us a talk No, we're not going to act up? Because we were too scared to act up because we were in church all the time. Um, The reason she did it, though, was to teach us a lesson that you can't just be concerned about you. You also have to be concerned about how other people perceive you. And that is a particular kind of skill. And so racial socialization is the conversations that parents might have with their children, verbal or nonverbal. But racial literacy is what skills do you take away from those conversations that would allow you to be more agentic to withstand the oppression that comes after you, whether it's around profiling, whether it's around uh, slights or microaggressions, or whether it's uh, blatant physical assaults, how do you psychologically manage that? So for us, racial literacy (coughs) is three things. How well do you read, um, how well do you recast, and how well do you resolve a racially stressful moment? Reading would be, do I notice when a racial moment is happening around me? Some people got this. Some people really don't get it. They don't know when a racial moment is occurring. Um, is also, well, how well do I read what's happening inside me, my body? Do I know what my thoughts are doing? Do I know what my body's doing? And do I know what my emotions are doing? And All of these influence the decisions I'm going to make next. Recasting is if I'm on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being highly stressful, 1 being not stressed at all, if I'm at an eight, nine, or 10, we consider that a threat-like condition. And you're a lousy decision maker if you are stressed during a racial moment at that level. And the recasting is, how, what strategies, mindfulness, prayer, uh, support do I have to help me bring my eight, nine, and 10 down to a five, six, or seven? We think a lot of police officers in these moments, if you, if you think about Tamir Rice example, he had about six seconds before the decision was made. If you're an 8,910 sort of scenario, we think um, any of us could make very unhealthy, dangerous decisions in less than a couple of uh, minutes. So recasting. Now resolving is how well do I make a healthy decision that isn't an underreaction to a racially stressful moment, or an overreaction? And do I walk away deciding in a way that matches my social justice values? And not just beliefs, but I act justly. not believe justly, but act justly. And so racial literacy is how skillful can I negotiate? How competent can I be in negotiating a racially stressful moment? Thank you.
0: And um, Dr. Daniels, just taking the conversation back to technology, you were an expert witness in the briefings around the Deep, Deep Fake Accountability Act. And specifically, what I'm interested in, what I would like for you To share with the room is in terms of technical systems, how in your work have you seen them become racialized? And how and why, specifically, if they are anti black, how has that kind of shown up?
2: Yeah, one of the things, and I mentioned the second book I did, which is called Cyber Racism. It came out in 2009, which was early to be talking about race and tech, but. the, I had the advantage of having seen, having watched these groups and printed publications before, and I was interested in how they were making use of, you know, this newfangled Internet technology. And one of the things, so, like, some of them didn't make it. I mean, that's the first thing to say. Some of them didn't make the transition, and some of them were just like, oh, Internet, sorry, peace out. Um, and others made a very clunky transition. There were some that did a kind of tried to do like sort of a copy and paste of the newsletter broadsheet form onto online and... Okay, but nobody was really clicking on that. The most pernicious and nefarious of the presence I found in the early internet was um, a site that many of you may have come across, which is the martinlutherking.org website. And this this is what I call a cloaked website. And by that, I mean it was an early form of propaganda or disinformation. And what they were trying to do was disguise the authorship of that website. And part of what they were doing was they got domain name nomenclature, like they got. You know, it's the early days of the internet. Most of you are probably too young to remember this, but there was a time when we were teaching people in internet literacy. Well, if you just look at the URL, if it doesn't say GeoCities forward slash somebody's name, then it's probably good to go. And I interviewed people for that, uh, young people age 15 to 19, for that early for that book. And I asked them, so what do you what do you think of this website? What do you think of MartinLutherKing.org when they would find it through a search engine at the time, Alta or Yahoo? But it always came up in the top three or four re- results, and they would say, well, I would trust it because it has the URL. It ends in .org, so they must be dedicated to that. That's what one of them said. And then I had another young person in that in that research who who looked at the the text of the page, and she said, well, I don't know. This seems like um, they're dedicated to Dr. King, and, but it looks like it was created by a young person. So she was sort of cluing into the, the really basic GUI, right? And she was sort of cluing into that. But the, the danger in that, right, is that you just need a better GUI. You just need a better graphic designer to make a more uh, pernicious presence. The ones that really scared me or the ones that really alarmed me were the, the students. There was another page on there, the young people who said, this page looks like it's another cloak site. This page looks like it's against, I'm sorry, this page looks like it's saying slavery is OK. And I guess there are two sides to everything.
0: And part Which of what- we heard very recently. Yeah, right.
2: An idea that has not gone away. But part of what I took from that was that our internet literacy, the way that we were teaching internet literacy, was flawed because we were only talking about a kind of technical. Uh, literacy, about recognizing the URL or sort of figuring out who, you know, using the Whois database, God bless you, uh, using the Whois database to find out who published a site. And those are all important technical skills to have. But there was another young person that I interviewed who said, I'm reading this text about slavery being okay, but I know from other things that I've read that slavery is not okay. that it was brutal, that it was violent, that it was vicious. And to me, what that young person demonstrated was a kind of racial literacy. And so, so for her, she was able to suss out and figure out the cloak site was a form of propaganda because she had not only internet literacy, but she had racial literacy as well. And so that—that's actually in the conclusion of cyber racism that I call for. We need something more than just internet literacy. We need racial literacy, and it was before I knew of Dr. Stevens' work. But but I think that there's um, there's a real way in which we have to combine those, and that came out just recently when we looked at when I was at Congress at Mutali's invitation, and I was on a panel with Shereen Mitchell, who's talking about the disinformation campaign by. by the Russian government and Russian bots and part of what they did was they exploited our racial ignorance right I mean they would create uh, accounts that were fake black people right and that was part of what they used in that disinformation campaign so I just want to say one other thing if I could Um, a slight caveat on our visit to the public interest technology summit that was at the Harvard Kennedy School it's not quite the case that no one was talking about race because they had the super smart, lovely Professor Latanya Sweeney, who spoke, and everyone was blown away. And she did her uh, presentation on her research about how um, Google advertising, like the native advertisements that you see when you sign into Google, like if you have a black-sounding name like Latanya, then you're going to get these ads served up that are are searching. Uh, arrest records and, and bail databases for your name. right? And she she stumbled upon that and found it and has done wonderful research on that. And everyone in that room, which was predominantly white, all these people who were doing po- uh, public interest technology fellowships were all like, that's fantastic. They were blown away by what she said. But then when she got off the dais, when she got off the stage, everybody was like, OK, well, we don't have to think about race anymore. And that was really, for me, was the moment I was like, no, no, no. All the rest of us need to keep having that conversation. We can't just let Professor Sweeney, as wonderful as she is, carry all that weight. So in a way, for me, the racial literacy in tech is about, is about sharing that burden, if you will, and sharing that uh, uh, challenge of thinking about race in tech. How is tech building race into these systems? And we can't only leave it to people who are racialized as black or uh, other racial identities to, to think about that. We have to all be engaged in that thought.
0: So, thank you for that. One of the things that I found uh, when I was working in Congress and really trying to uh, th- think about com- compelling storytelling, specifically around facial recognition, was to try and think about, ca- try and find case studies and try and think about scenarios where there was um, a civil rights frame, because I'm speaking to a bunch of lawyers and I'm trying to convince a bunch of lawyers. And one of the things, one of the helpful things I was able to find out was in New York City in the 1700s, the the city council passed a law called the Lantern Law. And what that meant was anybody who was racialized as black would have to hold a light up against their face in the dark because they were deemed dangerous by uh, white New Yorkers. Now, at the time, there were no streetlights at at that time. So my assumption is we couldn't see white New Yorkers either. And they may be dangerous too, but they didn't have to have lanterns. And what that did was made made me go and look at the projects close to where I live. I live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Um BK in the house? Brooklyn. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> always. So um, I live in Bed-Stuy. I call Bed-Stuy Wakanda because it has these gorgeous brownstones, which is surrounded by by projects. And it's one of the reasons our gentrification looks a certain way, because you're always close to the projects. No matter how much you buy that brownstone for, you are close <laughs> to the projects. But one of the things that I realized is that they flip they floodlight the projects too in the same way that the Lantern Lords were being used in the same way that facial recognition that was being used. And the reason we were able to enter that bill was I was speaking to the Congressional Black Caucus. Many of them looked at the projects in their own districts and realized that there was a history of the surveillance of black bodies around this narrative of Uh, blackness and danger and what we were doing through facial recognition was now building technical systems with those logics in mind even though the response from companies were often we didn't think about that we didn't mean to do it and I'm famous for my work saying your intention could kill me I'm interested in impact Um, which is probably more like your mother than your father but (laughs) Mm -hmm. hey Mm-hmm. So my final question before we start to bring um, all the brilliant people in the room into the conversation is, many of the people that are listening to us now may be in similar scenarios, uh, where they're creating policies, they're, they're, creating, uh, they're, they're sitting in a tech company maybe, and they're looking at new products, and how can we use some of these ideas about racial literacy to an audience who are not necessarily thinking about justice, who probably don't have social justice values, the ones that we share, but how could we, in kind of three minutes, push through to, to that particular audience? <clears throat>
1: three minutes, you said? <laughs> yes, yeah,
0: <because>. solve racism <laughs> in three minutes, <laughs> three minutes yes.
1: Okay. Well, um, I think the racial threat research is helpful here in understanding um, when people are face to face, I mean, we're a culture that does not talk about race. But the reason we don't talk about it is we're viscerally fearful of what will happen to us if we start a conversation. Will I be thought of in a particular way? Will I be stereotyped? Will I be socially humiliated? <clears throat> and so um, part of the notion of threat is that if I spike at 8, 9, and 10, just when the word race shows up, let alone a racial tension conflict that shows up, or if I'm responsible, say, in my classroom on my beat in my family to navigate that problem, um, I feel incredibly inept. But um, you could argue that not just interpersonal interaction creates that sense of threat, but information. So any information that comes to me around history that I don't know, I may just decide to not include it in my analysis, which is where I've learned from the two of you um, about how um, the stereotypes that you know, In the same way that families socialize children around race, you could argue society has been doing it for centuries. And so um, if I'm uncomfortable with information around race, why would I use any narratives from that frame in my creation of products or in creation of code or mm-hmm. how you all have taught me that um, who we are gets um, um, sort of socialize into the work that we do. And we know that's true in education and curriculum development. We know that's true in healthcare. We know that's true in justice around arrest as well as sentencing. So why wouldn't it be true in technology?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with all that. And I would just, I would just add uh, um, Dr. Ruha Benjamin from Princeton was in within this very room last semester talking about abolitionist tools. Uh, for liberation, that we, we've got to learn to build tools that work for our, our collective liberation rather than, um, you know, perpetuating surveillance and entrapment and all that. Um, and I, I would just say that I, I the question that I asked her at the time and, and still my kind of provocation for that wonderful work that she does in the book Race After Technology is um, – is I don't know that we're going to get to building abolitionist tools without the scaffolding of racial literacy. I really think that we need uh, to build up uh, capacity for racial literacy among people who are um, building the technology. The other thing that I would say is that I think that the moment we're in right now tells us that Uh, the tech companies over the last uh, 20, 30 years have not demonstrated an ability to uh, regulate themselves. And so I think there really needs to be actual government policies when we get back to having a government that makes policies and enforces them um, that regulate the tech industry. So those are my
0: two. And I was going to ask you just to go slightly forward, if I may, before um, before we open up, because I always think about the shooting in Charleston, and how um, Dylan Roof went into the church. So a white supremacist, he's um, radicalized on the internet, and then goes in and shoots nine people at Bible study. Similar kind of narrative around Christchurch, this radicalization online. And we know from work of Joan Donovan, um, Claire Warder, and others, that algorithms are actually optimized to spread information that, that that satisfies virality. So could you just speak a little bit more about how white supremacy travels online and how the technical systems that we build enable that? Because I think that that's also useful as we think about rules and regulations um, around those technologies.
2: Right, so um, when I was uh, finishing my dissertation Changing that into a book was about uh, 1995, and that, in for those of you who remember, April of 1995 is when the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City uh, was blown up by white supremacists. That event. So this is early days of the internet. Most people didn't have the internet in their homes or on their devices, walking around. Um, but that, the description of that event and the the technology that he used, being you know a rented uh, moving truck and a bunch of fertilizer, um, that. Got posted onto the internet. That inspired uh, a white supremacist killing in Oslo, Norway, um, some 10-12 years later. And then that, specifically the killing in, in Oslo, Norway, inspired the killing in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, and and Dylan Roof was in all of that as well. The one in uh, Charlottesville. So so the point of that is saying that the you know one of the points I made in cyber racism is that the spread of White supremacy is happening globally. It's so much easier now than when I drove from Austin to Montgomery to get archives from the Klan Watch Archive. Now it's it's very easy to get access to that same kind of extremist material. And what's happened since about 2007, 2008 is that algorithms have sped up um, the spread of that information. So, like Matali was just saying, that as you probably all know, algorithms optimize for virality, and that's part of what happened in Christchurch when he put the shooting on Facebook Live and streamed it as he was killing people. And, and people are drawn to clicking on that, watching that, even if they are morally, spiritually, physically repulsed by it, there's still something about the technology that compels us to click and share um, horrific things that we see online. And white supremacists know that and are um, exploiting it. They're what I call innovation opportunists. They see these. Um, back doors in the technology and they walk right through them and use them for their own ends so
0: thank you thank you both so we've spoken a lot I was I'm hoping that this is a conversation that we can have as family as community in this room and um, I would like to open it up for questions
3: <coughs> Hi, <coughs> sorry. I'm
2: Todd Wallach. I'm a journalist and a fellow this year at Berkman Klein and uh, the Neiman Foundation. I'm really curious what type of response- and thanks so much for your um, co- starting this conversation. really appreciate it. I'm really curious what type of response
1: you've gotten when you've talked to people at technology companies. Have they been welcoming to this type of discussion? Or have they been closed, and has it been changing over time?
2: I mean to take that. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. We talked to people at tech companies when we were developing the report for Data and Society, and since then we've heard from a lot of people at tech companies, and are kind of uh, there's kind of a bimodal distribution of responses that we hear. There's the the sort of sotto voce on the down low. This is great. Love what you're doing. <laughs> Officially, we we have no need of this the things that you're speaking of here. So it's really kind of uh, separate conversations. The sort of official response is, we don't need any sort of education about racial literacy. We are doing our own thing. It's usually implicit bias, and we're done after that. Um, but but people who work in HR at some of the biggest tech companies that you would recognize the names of, or I to name them, uh, are like, this is really important, and we need to have this. And, and we also had one person specifically, and I think maybe this is in the report, say that the usual discussions around diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, they say is, a, is often a cover. It's a way to avoid talking <coughs> about race. And that the actual, very much to Dr. Stevenson's work, that the very uh, uh, word race is racially stressful for the majority of people that are working in tech companies. So it's, like, it's, a, it's a non-starter just because it's so stressful to even mm-hmm. say the word race.
0: One of, the things, one of the things that I will say in terms of, so the report only came out in May last year, but one of the things that I've started to see a change around is as my work has, is turning towards disinformation and is really facing journalists and people understand that I am a journalist and I know how to use that tool, that certainly people, from, people who are working in advertising are beginning to kind of, I'm noticing who's following me on Twitter, I'm I'm noticing, and that's because of the Mueller report. So it was nothing that we said, but it was this external report and the blacktivists and woke blacks and these other, um, so the blacktivists and woke blacks just for context were were social media pages created by the uh, IRA in St. Petersburg to uh, develop black online communities. That I was a part of spreading that disinformation. They started out with stuff like "girl crush," when like "woman crush Wednesday." I was like, "Yes, you know, Black girl magic, me." Um, and I'm, you know, I'm part of this. And then I start to notice, and this is in the report, it became Hillary Clinton doesn't like Black people. Which one of the things I will say about disinformation is that it starts in truth. Not saying she doesn't like them. <laughs> don't know still retweeting, and then eventually, just before the election, don't vote for Hillary Clinton, and then the report came out, and I think that there has been some reckoning around race, particularly from platform companies, when they realized that they were gamed through these back doors, but the idea of racial literacy just to be nice to black people just doesn't, it's not compelling, (laughs) it's really not, and we um, we were actually told that we would have to go for people's reputational risk, which is a strategy, like shaming people into calling them racist. And that's not really the work, either. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. <clears throat> My name is Leonard Cortana. I'm a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center also. And I'm a PhD student at NYU film. So I have a question around uh, the use of racial literacy in some, not I want to say contradiction, but some different ways of reflecting race within uh, marginalized communities. We have this concept of opacity. Many, many communities of color are claiming this right for opacity to be against that transparency and this idea that also to be complex doesn't mean to be completely transparent. And I know that part of the work that you're doing with racial tr- literacy is somehow to push transparency to also understand all those interactions within race. So, how to be articulating this work that is important, that is claiming social justice, but at the same time respecting this opacity that some communities of color want to reclaim their role in society?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that that's a, a an important point. I just think that without racial literacy, the people in tech companies or people who are making tech policies are never going to understand or acknowledge the desire, the request, the demand for opacity. I mean, there's just no um, there's no uh, place that that can anchor in their understanding, right? Because why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want to be recognized? You know, like it just doesn't sort of land with them. So I think.
0: I can, I can certainly speak. I didn't work on this piece of legislation, but uh, Jessie and I have a colleague who worked on uh, predictive bail instruments, and there was a bill introduced in October of last year, and we were really trying to support her as she argued that criminal justice has, is a racialized area. Therefore, when we think about how these algorithms should be audited in terms of who deciding to get bail, we would have to have a very strong conversation about race. And what we were being told on the other side is that this is just about technology and it's not about race. And some people are bad. And I mean, these are people, you know, we were arguing against lawyers who graduated from this law school, not to call the place that's given us free lunch out. But it just seemed like a very rudimentary argument. And there was no fact. So this. Um, The call call for what what communities of color want in the spaces that we're describing are not relevant, because communities of color are just not relevant. Did
2: you have
1: a question?
3: Each of you, what is the one thing that, if you had the ear of, you know, Amazon and Google and Facebook, what's the one thing that you want them to do right now that would advance toward the goal that you want? <clears throat>
1: um, I think I, you know, I'd be because I'm interested in how people react to moments. I'd, I'd be interested in how the folks you would identify who. Who write and who create these technologies, what they would do emotionally and physiologically when they're presented with information about race and politics and history. And and just to have a lesson, and if we could, you know, hook them up to some, some gear that would allow us to understand um, how their bodies are reacting during these conversations it would be a way to get a sense of, this is not just benign information. This is not simply uh, an, an issue of, um, of uh, races is involved in how we also exclude understanding um, in the same way that we think about white flight, in the same way that we think about um, the, the sense of threat that this information means about me. I mean, many of us who are academics, we struggle with, How are we gonna deal with new knowledge that we didn't grow up with, that we've still gotta integrate? It's threatening to us. Um, And so I think the same is true for those who haven't even been exposed. And I think you've both described the level of ignorance around race in our society um, in the way that we could argue in families like mine where it was socialized more directly, not only through actions, but music. You could argue other people are equally as ignorant And so every young person that shows up who hasn't had exposure, not only to racial knowledge, but how to manage it emotionally, that it's not a threat to who they are to learn this stuff, um, we're going to be working very hard for time to come. The only other thing I would add to that is I feel very hopeful, if people are willing to face those fears, that they can bring their eight, nines, and tens down to five, six, and seven, and they can see their own stories and their own narratives, as you describe your own narrative, is not a sort of uh, indictment on, on your own humanity or being bad, as it were. Um, so it's very hopeful if people can listen, if people can admit to um, uh, these notions. So um, I would love to watch people and talk to them while they're processing this information.
0: I think if, if I had their ear. I would say to them, accept regulation and back off, <laughs> <laughs> and not because I believe in the well. Two things. I grew up in. The, I grew up in the UK. I grew up in, with a welfare state, cradle to grave. I grew up with unions being part of how we lived, and I also, um, in my very early life, my very young life, grew up. Uh, hearing my parents talk about what a disaster Margaret Thatcher was. So, I've grown up in a country that has, is imperfect and moving to the right, like many other countries um, in Europe and making really poor decisions, but this idea that the state will protect poor people, the state will protect marginalized people is very strong in my imaginary and I'm very much struggling with uh, the libertarian ideals of Silicon Valley. So l- last week I was at Stanford. I went to John Perry Barlow's archive. They just re- they just got it recently. That's what I thought. Um, and <laughs> uh, as I was like and as I was reading the papers, my, my friend is writing a book based on these archives. <clears throat> so I was reading the papers. And the la- the, the kind of romanticism around, the market will save us and, um, you know, the market will save us made me kept thinking, but the the state has in many ways saved me, both as a child, both as an adult. And we do need people who can think about regulations that both allows for innovation and allows for um, capitalistic growth, but at the same time, we can if we see if we see hate speech online, that there are some at least uh, guidelines around that. If we are looking at technologies that are predatory and racially uh, marked, that there, that there can be a legal standard for us to to even consider that. We were in a smaller conversation prior to this where we were looking at the NYPD's Defense of facial recognition technology. In um, identifying suspects, and the very last line in the article was basically, "We have no rules, so we're going to do what we want." That scares me, like the NYPD, not the the friends of the people living in with the blacks, you know. Like, so I that that's the thing that I would say, and that's a conversation that I'm in back and forth.
2: Yeah, I think I, I think I would say um, ban Nazis. You know, like take the take the white supremacist threat to. Your tech platform seriously and and get them off. Um, and there's a whole other conversation to be had about free speech and hate speech. And I just think we can we can adopt the European model where you're where you value free speech, but you also see it as a as balanced in a human rights framework as um, in conversation with uh, the right not to be annihilated or have the have your people the recommendation of your people being annihilated. I think I think that's one of the first things, and, and secondarily, I would just say, you know, rethink surveillance. Like, think of a different business model than surveillance. Like, there's no re- like, Jeff Bezos, no, don't sell any more Ring doorbells. Just zero that column out in your spreadsheet. Like, don't need any more of those. Pull them off the market. Get rid of them. It's a terrible technology. It's gonna get someone killed if it hasn't already.
3: Hi, um, Jessica Field. I'm the assistant director of the Cyber Law Clinic here. Um, Last month we released a study on um, a bunch of the different AI ethical principles that are around the world. And I was thinking about um, one of the principles that we saw pretty commonly in that report um, was a call for increased inclusivity on development teams um, for AI tools. And I was thinking about that in terms of the theme of um, today's talk, racial literacy and technology, Um, And this is sort of a follow-up on on the previous question set me up well, which is um, if these companies that are developing AI tools are going to build more inclusive teams, what do they have to do to help their existing staff um, get prepared to work effectively on more diverse teams?
1: Well, um, if we look at what happens in other institutions where diversity and usually it's a demographic diversity call. In some places it's a brochure diversity. You only see it in the brochure of the institution. But um, when changes are made in the, in the team, the stress levels go up dramatically. And so one argument in hiring process is why many places think about fit as the final determination of. Of between two candidates about who should get in, it's usually based on, uh, fit is a, is a is code for, this person would stress me out less, or would stress us out less, or they get our mission better, which is they'll stress us out less. And I think that is a form of racism that's in, unintentional and intentional, because it's systematically consistent across different systems. And so I would prepare every system about that, You know what you're going to be afraid of, from the, before the hiring process begins, and to take notes along the way. Um, and I think this is true for those of us who've been the only one in the room, whether it's around gender, around race, or whatever, that um, you have to also have your own mettle and be prepared for how you use your voice. you know. In our work around lion story, it's a proverb. The lion story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it. So who is going to be the voice in those rooms, courageous enough to challenge others' stress around difference? And I think, um, in a sense, we've always had one person in a room, <laughs> but one is not enough. But how you get two in the room, I think um, uh, leaders can be better and more literate about how they are also afraid uh, in those processes, and we can do something about it.
2: Yeah, I, I just want to add one one thing to that. I, I totally agree with all that, and I think and I've seen it play out before. Um, I was I left academia for a while and went to work in a, a dot com back when that was still uh, the first bubble, and I was uh, the only out lesbian there, and I became fast friends with the only um, at, uh, the only African American who was employed <laughs> by that company. We both ended up getting laid off at uh, different times, but. Um, so I've seen this dynamic in, in uh, play out in in tech companies, and one of the things that I would just add um, to to talking about how diverse teams change the dynamic is that there's something, and I I'm struggling for a better way to say this, but so pardon the academic jargon, but. Uh, there has to be a move to decenter whiteness. And here's what I mean by that. If I'm white, I've grown up in, or if I'm included in that category of whiteness, I've grown up in a, in a culture in a society which has at every turn told me that I'm the smartest person in the room, I know the answers, I need to lean in to take over leadership of whatever group I'm in. And, and de-centering whiteness, to use that clumsy phrase, is to learn... To read, the, to read the room and go, oh, look, there are racial dynamics happening here. The first in your three-part step is mm-hmm. like read the racial moment and go, oh, I'm participating in this thing that's happening. And if I can just shift so I'm not the smartest, the one that needs to lean in and take over leadership, if I can just step back a little bit, it's gonna change the dynamic in the room. <clears throat> and that, I think, is a crucial kind of skill in racial literacy that white people have to develop is to learn not to lead, not to, not to be the first one on the mic, not to be the one who's gonna, well I can run that committee. Like step, step back and see if things don't feel better for everybody in the room.
0: And I, I think for me, I recently I wrote an op-ed in the summer and as part of my research, I was looking at the number of black uh, the number of black researchers in AI across Facebook, Google, and um, Amazon. And I found one. And uh, she's an intern, Uh, we're in 2020, she's not an intern anymore, she was an intern last year. And she went to Berkeley and um, I contacted her and she just really needed the internship to finish her program, but she felt so uncomfortable because Every racial everything. Like we went to, she she worked on the Google Brain team. So they're doing a lot of um health, predictive health work. And she she just felt incredibly stressful because white people would constantly <laughs> be asking her, like, are you okay? Are you comfortable? And she had to say yes because she needed the internship. But she was like, No, I hate it here. Like, I straight mm-hmm. up hate it here. There, there um there is no Way for me. So, I don't necessarily know how to prepare the teams. Maybe opening, it has to be a, there has to be some type of culture shift that the organization makes while it's still white to prepare itself. Because the black person's prepared often and is going to war. Like, I mean, I've been on this for, this is my second semester, this is like my third hairstyle. Like, you know, <laughs> I have to do certain things when I'm moving in certain spaces to get what I want because even just showing up is so threatening.
1: Yeah, Someone here. Is somebody back there, a
0: the hand, as well. Okay. Thank you so much for hosting this event. Uh, so a follow up to the previous question. Um,
3: I mentor a lot of undergrads and grad students and some of them are going into these spaces that are majority white. Uh, majority male, and how do I advise them in terms of,
0: on one hand, I do want them to succeed in these spaces that are not open to them. At the same time, I don't want them to feel excluded or feel mentally unwell because they're dealing with racism and sexism in their uh, everyday workplace. Do you have any advice?
1: (coughs) I think, um, so, you know, James Baldwin said that the mouse always knows more about the cat than the cat knows about <laughs> the mouse." And part of that is, um, there is no way you could be in, in any of these systems and not take a hit on your health, both physical and mental. The argument for why we need socialization taught is to prepare you, and this is my mother's interest that I I can't change those environments. It would be nice if I could. The supermarket should just be where you go get food. It shouldn't be a war zone for racial stress. But it is that. And so I'm going to prepare you for that. And I I think we don't do that, particularly in these Ivy League institutions, where there is this sort of mantle of smart hanging over everyone. But it means something very different. So the issue is not if you're going to be stressed. You're going to be stressed. The question, is, are you prepared for it? And I would argue. In, my, in 30 years at Penn, you know, we, I used to be a faculty master at the Boys College House, which was a safe zone for students of color, particularly African American and, and African students. Um, but part of it was socializing them to prepare them to go back into the rest of the campus. And we took that seriously. And I think a lot of places don't take that seriously because we think of egalitarianism as a as as not speaking very directly to how some people this is a fair place and for other people it's not a fair place. So I wouldn't let you go out into the cold with just your underwear on and freezing. And the same is true in the racial climates that we exist. And um, I think we can be prepared for these notions. And I think it affects us internally as well. To not get the protection means we're going to question ourselves, we're going to question our histories, we're going to question people who look like us And we're going to sometimes not finish the the trek or the journey while we're here. Um, There's another thing we say is that our job is to help you fall in love with your own story. And part of that means preparing you for other people who clearly create narratives about you where you are not human, you're not adequate. Um, So it's not if, it's a matter of when, and are you ready for it.
2: Can I just add one thing to sort of Close almost close us out. I just want to say that there, there's a an, there's another piece here that we haven't really talked about, and that's the so many of us in the room are are scholars or are scholars in training uh, around doing technology, and I just I just want to make a plug for um, the fact that if you're if you're studying technology, if you're interested in technology, and that you have to take into account race, that you have to understand that systemic racism is not something that's in a separate bucket, that, it, that it's woven into technology. And if you, say, come out with a, a giant book that's 700 pages about surveillance capital and capitalism and you never mention race, I think that's a form of scholarly malpractice, that you've got to take seriously the way that racism is implicated in these systems. And if you, if you don't, then you're only telling a partial story.
0: Thank you, everybody, so much for your time and for your attention. And um, come and see us afterwards. But thank you so, so much. Thank you.